This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I grew up in a family that valued highly education and um, cultural study and understanding, and my parents saved a lot and invested in travel. So from the time I was young growing up, I kind of knew that there were other worldviews and other ways to think about things that were not my own and that those perspectives had significant value and could change and shift how you understood God and how big you understood God to be. Um, in the Lutheran church, the the grace and the love was huge. It was even ELCA brand of Lutheranism. And so it was kind of like just of everything you want to know, like God loves you, God forgives you, there's mercy, there's grace, there's complete freedom to continue to work in all of that. So that was the, the core thing that kind of moved around, um, that God felt that way about everybody in the world. Um, and there wasn't a high um, evangelistic bent. Like there wasn't a huge like, hey, rush out and grab all your friends who don't mm. think or practice the way you think and rush them into this room so that then they will do it the right way. I didn't grow up with that at all. So when I first went to Israel in 2003, just on a study tour um, and not yet part of JUC, it was just, um, it was one more travel experience, right? But the shift is that it's a travel experience that's opening up your a book that's intimate to you, right? In every single way. Like Jesus, um, you know, I had wanted to be a pastor since I was 13. I, I was pursuing this as my whole life's work and had only been part of Lutheran or Pre Presbyterian churches at that time. Um, and so being in, and then moving my one non-denominational church experience was at a very large, robust, primarily African-American church here. So also a new cultural shift and experience. Going to Israel, you you walk in and you start to read the land and you read your book, your text in the land and sit there at the Sea of Galilee and open up the Book of Mark and start to go, oh yeah, he's there. And then he walks over there and then he's doing this. And it feels like you're reading your family story, right? So when you're in that space, you're not expecting to try to read Jesus in a church. There, We didn't go to churches. We only went to synagogue and to the temple steps and all those other places you're reading you're reading jesus as a first century torah observant jew mm. and um and that was beautiful and a coming home not not it wasn't new to read the text that way but it was uh enhanced certainly it was 3d and in color um, which makes a huge shift and i think what happens now i've been leading study tours since 2003 uh since 2007 excuse me and um when i lead these study tours I see people who have their pictures in their head um, in Northern California. So they probably picture communion bread to look like a San Francisco sourdough loaf. And then they picture the Sea of Galilee to look like, or the Mediterranean Sea to look like Northern California coast, right? Mm -hmm. And when they get there and then they start to read their text walking around the Sea of Galilee, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Um, maybe the pictures I've had aren't actually factual. And then maybe if I don't have that right, maybe I don't have other things right too. Maybe mm -hmm. Jesus didn't kick out all kosher laws with one line in Mark saying, and therefore he declared all food clean, right? Amen. Maybe I'm going to have to really wrestle with the fact that when 
Peter is in Yafo in Joppa and he has that vision, right? And he goes, oh, wait, I have never eaten anything unclean. That we're going to have to deal with the fact that that meant that as a disciple of Jesus, he was Torah observant the entire time, right? In terms right. of his dietary practice. So all of those things, I think, get illuminated and shifted and moved. And because of that, then I see people opening their hearts um, to say, well, maybe I am supposed to love that person that's so hard for me to love or who thinks about things a bit differently than I do. Or maybe I have to really take very seriously Jesus's commands to love my neighbor, love people I perceive as enemy, um, and really actually do the hard work. Like when the land is practical and sitting there in its physical setting, maybe I need to actually go give somebody water or go help somebody who's hungry with food or actually really go and visit somebody incarcerated, really go and care for the sick, all of those kinds of things. At some point, I want to come back to the fact that you wanted to become a pastor at 13 because I find that <laughs> stupefying. <laughs> but uh, but we'll come. As somebody who worked as a pastor, I'm like, did she actually know what it was like? Probably not at 13, but that's okay. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I once had a homiletics professor who said, you know, when he trying to do what you're talking about here, he said, you know, when Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. Um, right. Do you do you think he was just throwing up a thought exercise, or he was like? pointing to actual like look at those birds right there like do you think right. that bird yes. right over there worries uh yes. no god takes care of that bird right there and i think that you know what some people called the scandal of particularity um hmm. even in issues of justice you know um mm -hmm. of s systemic injustices um there's something about saying oh jesus came to this place you know that yeah. the israelites came to this place supposed to live this out right for actual people on these rocks, on these hillsides, right. um, and therefore it must be lived out on my rocks and hillsides, wherever I come from. Right, right, um, absolutely. So you, so you lead people. I've never led tours to Israel, um, but uh, do you find that people can actually have that reaction? I feel like that was something that, that was slow to come to me. After it took a while, it took about eight trips to Israel before I finally. It you know, it all together. one of those, one of those things of like the first time you go, I think you, after the trip, you think, I think I was in Israel. And then the second time <laughs> you go, cause it's like such a, a water hose experience. Second time you go, right. you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure I've been here before. And then the third time you're like, okay, definitely. I have right. been here one Did time before that me. the last right. time. <laughs> right. Did God just put that there. I just, and even as a tour leader now for, you know, again, over, over a decade plus, I often think to myself while I'm teaching, in the field, something I've taught 10 times. Oh, now I get yeah. it. And I'm yeah. the teacher of it. And all of a sudden it's landing, you know, to use like that archaeological tell example, like all of a sudden it's sinking down to an Iron Age level mm. when it didn't live there before, before it was topsoil. Mm. And regularly as I'm leading tours, I am constantly having people say, did you stage that? Like, did you, did you... <laughs> pay for those sheep and goats to show up right then yeah, when you were talking yeah. about thing I'm like no i'm i'm just in the desert and so right. when we're in this area which is shepherd territory that's to be expected but there was one time <laughs> sitting by the sea of galilee just up at the sermon on the mount area where as i was reading the sermon on the mount and said you know consider the birds of the air, birds flew out and everyone's like no way <laughs> i'm like 
this is, it's not magic, right? This is the land and the land speaks and cries out. And those lessons that you're learning with your feet and your eyes and your ears and smell and taste, all of those things can't be necessarily taught in the abstract. And I don't mean to diminish mm. that people can have uh, these revelations and insights apart from going to the land. I recognize going to the land is an incredible privilege. Um, it's very expensive and it's out of the reach mm. of many. Um, however, our faith happened in a particular, all of the things we believe happened in a particular place and a particular space and time. And God could have chosen other times to do it and mm. did not, right? And and as followers of Jesus, our Messiah came in first century Jewish flesh, and we should be taking that first century Jewish flesh seriously if we want to understand who our Messiah is and how he lived and how he then rabbied, like led his disciples um, and leads and calls us. And I think when you're in the space and you're starting to see those things, you know, come to life in front of you, or you just walk in and they're already living, um, and also encountering the living stones that are there as well, right? The people that carry these stories and carry these place names mm. as part of their own history for, you know, centuries, it, it shifts you and changes you. And I think it's very humbling. I think you're like, oh man, I am a stranger here. I am mm. the wild branch grafted in. And I can approach my faith and my fellowship of Jesus with a lot more humility than maybe I've practiced previously. Yeah, I think that that the humility, because it's, you know, it's like the first time I was out on a ship in the middle of the sea and you're like, oh, this whole big ship could go down to the bottom of the ocean and nobody would ever, ever find us. There's a <laughs> sense so of that kind of overwhelming nature yeah. of the history, the land, the, yeah. you have to wrestle with the, um, you know, we think of the promised land and, you know, well, mm -hmm. why did God settle these people in the worst part of the promised land? You know, why, mm -hmm. why didn't he take them a little bit further north where it was nicer or a little bit further south where there's these big rivers? So there's so many different fronts that you're wrestling with. Um, have you ever thought about, because you're in, I don't know how California is separated. People say Northern California. And then I look at a map and I'm like, that's not that far north. Um, <laughs> but but there is a lot of agrarian uh, uh, culture in, in Northern yep. California. I do wonder if we're often, it's not that you have to go to Israel. I taught mm -hmm. rural mm -hmm. agrarian subsistence right. farmers in Kenya. Uh, right. I was teaching a, Bible interpretation class, and they were literally asking me to help them understand some of the parables. And I was like, don't you all farm for a living, right, like by right, hand? Right, right. <laughs> I feel like you should be teaching me these things. Right. So I wonder if a lot of it is that that alienation that we feel is often because we're listening to the voices. Uh, yep. There are people in our own communities who could actually help us understand at least some of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think, you know, this is an additional conversation we can have about the climate crisis that we're in. Mm. Um, I'm here in Northern California. I've lived here my whole life. My family's been here for four or five generations, right? Um, and in 2017, in the middle of the night, my parents had to flee flames on both sides. I'm I'm calling them. Mm. We can't get through. I'm begging them to get out. Um, and that has happened. They've been under mandatory evacuation twice in the last five years. Um, mm. And the, the fires that have come and ravaged us through have destroyed... <laughs> destroyed whole towns. Um, and our kids here in Silicon Valley, we're in like the wealthiest part of the world, right? Um, they can't go outside and play 
because the smoke is toxic and has um, it has changed the DNA of our children so that they are going to have cancer and heart disease and lung disease and all these other things as they come older, right? And obviously, this is impacting marginalized com- communities and our neighbors much more than those of us can, who can afford to close our windows. All of this is a consequence of being separated from nature, from the natural mm. world, right? I mean, I think we just, we haven't, when you go to other parts of the globe, they're experiencing and well aware of the damage we're doing to our climate on a daily basis and then to our garden, to this garden. Like if you listen to all the religious leaders this last fall with the Pope who said, we have inherited a garden, let us not leave our children a desert, right? Mm. Um, When you're connected to the land, then you don't need somebody to sit down and say to you, no, here's how you plant a seed, right? So you're right. Part of our separation has to do not with having whether or not we can afford to fly there or not, but because when we teach Bible, we're not teaching outdoors, right? We're teaching in sterile environments inside and now six feet apart and masked, (laughs) all the other things. Whereas when you go, I've often said, I think one of the best things about our tours is that it's just two weeks outside. Hmm. It's two weeks outside walking and listening and studying the Bible outside. And while you couldn't get the same experience here in Northern California, some experiences are very similar. Our climate is similar. I can find similar places. We can grow olive trees here. We can grow the seven species here from Deuteronomy. Right, right. right. Um, they grow in my yard. So I think there are things that um, if we just changed a bit of understanding our connection to land and place and space and and creation and our care our role as guardians of the garden, um, local gardens and the whole collective globe, I think it would change our understanding of the text for sure. Yeah, well, I, I teach uh, here in Manhattan, so we're directly in contact with nature every day. <laughs> All the deeply, time. Deeply, right. profoundly, yeah. Right. Um, no, we're seeing... <laughs> You know, it's funny because New York City is the greenest city in the world, or in the yeah. United States, mm. uh, twice as green as San Francisco, which is the next closest uh, right. in use of gasoline, mm. energy, water, mm-hmm. sewage producing. Uh, but it's just because of the density. And uh, right. I live in New Jersey, in Newark. And so you go over there and you see where the where the offshoots of these density issues, where it actually lands. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, I often smell the downside of the density of New York City in my neighborhood. Um, right. And I, as I guess as a pa- I'm already hearing this. You're a pastor, right? This is the, yep. you, you lead a congregation with your husband, um, Kevin. Yeah. And, yes. Um, how do you help? Does your church walk in the door going, yes, we're on board with all of this? Or do you have to like walk them through scripture and help them to make these connections in scripture itself? I, you know, I'd grown up in the middle of the country. Every word Jesus yeah. ever said was about my personal salvation as far as, as far yeah. as I heard of the church. Right. So right. how do you navigate with the church through these issues? That's a great question. Um, so I'm super fortunate to have created with a group of people, the community that we're in. So Spark Church is only nine years old, nine and a half years old. Um, we'll have our 10 year anniversary in the fall. And I've been a pastor for over 25 years now. And so when we started Spark, I think I'd seen a lot of what to do and what not to do um, in Hmm. church community from small churches to working in small, lovely neighborhood churches to very large, like 6,000 member churches. And 
you know, the the big, hairy, audacious goal was, can we start a church that can allow for conversation and doubt and wrestling and where you don't get voted off the island when you do that? And that you can walk in and say, I don't know about Jesus this week or at all, and not mm-hmm. have a like side-eyed, like, well, I guess that person's going to burn forever, right? But instead, a continued invitation into dialogue in the community. And one of the things, um, when we started the church, we started it with five values. We actually don't have a statement of faith. I know everybody freak out now. Um, if you want to read one, just go find one of the creeds, like you know, that are right. near two thousand years old. I don't know how we can judge whether you're right or not if if you right. don't give me a statement to go by. Exactly. So. How can you figure out if I really love right. Jesus? Um. So yeah. So just watch us, right? Um. And the five values are love, which is love. It's the Shema. It is core right. Shema. Like the, Jesus says, the number one commandment is love the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, for those who don't right. know what Shema is. Deuteronomy 6, <laughs> thank you, sorry. Um, no, no, and, Mark, okay. and Mark 12, right? What is the number one commandment? What's the greatest yeah. commandment? Here, and he says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai Elcheno, Adonai Chad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And if you're, you know, in the Gospels, they add mind, right, and might. Um, but if you're just in Deuteronomy, we, we don't need to do mind because the heart is the seat of intelligence, right, in Hebrew yes. thought. Um, so, and then the important key, and ve'ahavta la ve'acha kamocha from Leviticus 19.18, right, and love your neighbor as yourself. This, all of it is summed up in this. So when we were starting Spark, we're like, let's just do the thing Jesus tells us to do that's the most important thing. We're going to live out of this core value, believing that we are so deeply loved by God that then, and that God rescues and redeems us before we even go know God's name, right? This is the Exodus story. Um, before we know right from wrong, God pulls us out of Egypt and brings us to Sinai and wants to and says, "Will you love me?" Right in this beautiful covenant of love, of Chesed, um, and so we're just going to live out of this beautiful truth that the Father is fond of us, that God so loved us that He sent His only Son, and that we are now commanded to love everybody with that love, all of the neighbors on the globe, including those we'd perceive as enemies. This very unique teaching of Jesus to love our enemies as well, right? Which of course has all these echoes back to Deuteronomy too. I was going to say, well, right? I mean, but but <laughs> it's not it's unique not, to Jesus. No, but the emphasis is right yeah. in, in in first century Judaism. That emphasis was not the same found, right? I mean, right. for sure, love the stranger slash foreigner, right? Um, love the love the Egyptians. Like, there's all these other things, but there's there's also challenge like. And the Amalekites, you shall destroy and wipe their name off the face of the earth, right? right? So there's there's something unique in this teaching of Jesus. Um, David Flusser actually said this years and years ago. It's, you know, of blessed memory, uh, Israeli Jewish scholar of the Synoptic Gospels. And he was asked in a, in a lecture setting in Jerusalem, you know, what do you think makes Jesus unique? And he says, the, um, the command to love your enemy. And mm. the response of the crowd is like, wow, do you're saying that's what that's what Christianity is. That's what's unique about Christianity. He said, no, no, I've, I've never seen Christians do this. I'm just saying it's unique about Jesus, right, right? right? Which I'm sure we could find some Christians that have loved their enemy quite well. Yes. But that point, I think, still stands that if, and I've always read, ever since I heard that story, you know, a couple decades ago, it was like a thought of like, what if we did do that really well? Um, how what, what would change? And, you know, in Jerusalem, you see everybody living in their own quarters, right? Mm-hmm. And Wearing, eating their own food and wearing their own clothes and, and living 
lives in concert and separate, right? And distinctives are important. So I'm not suggesting everybody should be the same. But I've also wondered what would it be like if the people who claim to follow Jesus in that space were so well known for radical hospitality and love of everyone they met, even the people they perceived as enemy. Um, So that's this core value of spark. And everything comes out of that. The next one is is reputation of God, that we believe God cares about God's rep. It's like when he says Mm. to Moses, like, step back, I'm going to take these Israelites out because they're really ticking me off. And Moses like, what will they say about you in Egypt? So so, so we like- Think about the PR for crisis is going to create, right? Yeah. I never thought about the staving that way. Yeah. (laughs) What would be trending on social media? Oh my gosh, what will they say? So, So the reputation of God in our community, particularly in Silicon Valley, where it's like two to four percent of the community of our, it goes to any church at all, and mm-hmm. over fifty percent of our community is born somewhere outside the U.S. So, like, if we really take seriously our fellowship of Jesus, then we should be elevating the reputation of Christ um, in the hearts and the minds of everybody who sees us and meets us. And I don't know that we've done that quite as well as we need to. Um, yeah. And it. And it is deeply saddening and heartbreaking that we see that, um, like Jesus never would have been confused with a Roman nationalist 2000 years ago. Um, but we have people conflating the teachings of Jesus with nationalism today. Right. And this is uh, not of the kingdom. So, uh, the next, the next value then is reconciliation. And that's one of the reasons why we're in a synagogue. Um, we, our, my friend was the rabbi of the st- who started the synagogue. And when we were talking about building a community, he said, why don't you meet here? And it's more than just renting space. They've really helped plant a church. We tease them all the time. You help plant a church. Um, and well, we they find- are uh, Etz Hayim, right? They're Etz Hayim, right? They're a tree yeah. of life. Um, and we're friends and we care for each other. And, and it's that reconciliation value of reconciling all of us, like for followers of Jesus, like reconciling us to the Father through Christ, right? But also just starting to see that the deep hurt and pain that has been caused in the name of Jesus to the Jewish community and to the Muslim community and to people who are non-followers and all that, um, it is not, it's not belonging, it doesn't belong to Jesus. So our, it's our aim as sparkers to try to elevate the reputation of Christ, not to convert anybody, just elevate the reputation of Jesus in our community. Um, and so we do that for reputation and reconciliation, and that's where racial justice comes in, right? And that's where bringing people close to God comes in and families that have been torn apart interiorly or over theological issues or whatever. We're just trying to create space where people can move back to those core values and teachings of Jesus. Um, and then we believe in a God of rescue. We believe we've been rescued from sin and death. We believe in a God who rescues Israel out of Egypt and that God is inviting us to partner in that rescue. And our last core value is resurrection, that we believe in the resurrection, a physical, actual resurrection of Jesus. We believe in the resurrection to come. But we also believe that we're called to be resurrection people, people that Mm -hmm. can stand outside of a grave and say, ah, life comes from there. And we believe new life can come, that we can be a new creation. And your life that you're in right now does not have to be the life you stay in. So when we then, all of that say, bring in issues like, hey, we really need to care about systemic injustice that's happening to our black and brown brothers and sisters, that's not a shock for sparkers. Like, yeah, no, that makes sense because that's how I'm going to love that neighbor and I need to listen to their story. And that's that's how I'm going to elevate the reputation of God or bring reconciliation or rescue or resurrection. All of the values flow, flow from that. I think if you have a church that's based on 
do you believe these things? And if you don't believe these things and you don't agree that this is how it's all going to end up, or this is what God says about X, Y, and Z, then you're going to have a barrier immediately to who can come in and out. So I, I can imagine people listening to that thinking, uh, well, yeah, of, of course they have to deal with it. Like the, I, I think a lot of Christians, evangelicals will hear that and say, right. oh, that all sounds great, except for that whole letting people doubt and maybe I don't believe Jesus this week or whatever. That's the one that's right. really going to give them the heebie-jeebies. And then the next train of thought for me would be, oh, well, of course she lives in Silicon Valley or New York City or somewhere where mm-hmm. they're confronted mm-hmm. with you know, all these unbelieving people. Um, and so they have to, you know, they kind of have to play ball according to the Mm. populations that surround them. But then I also think as somebody who used to be a pastor in the Midwest, um, it's, it's not like there are less people who are doubting or struggling or racial issues (laughs) or anything where I lived in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder, do you, do you have, um, I don't want to say solution. I'm really avoiding the word solution. A recommendation <laughs> yeah. for the the average. So the average church in the United States, last time I checked, is still about 82 people. It's mm-hmm. small, uh, mostly mm-hmm. white because the majority population in the United States is white. Yeah. Um, evangelical-ish, uh, I think, is still the majority, even including Pentecostals there. So do you have a recommendation for the average kind of more homogenous? It's mostly white. They're not confronted by all the oddities of culture that you're confronted with in San Francisco and the, I would say the extreme, <laughs> the extremes of, of cultural mixing uh, in, yeah, in sure. gl- global cities like New York City or, or San Francisco. Yeah. Um, do they need to worry about any of this or can they just keep trucking? Yes. No. <laughs> okay. The reason, so first of all, I don't allow for all of that difference because I'm trying to be super cool or like, you know, welcoming. I allow for it because it exists whether or not I allow for it or not. People are walking into any single church on any given day going, I don't know if I could do this or this is really hard. Now, it's great. If you don't have doubt, praise God, that's awesome. But doubt is not a problem. Like we have stories in the gospels, right? Like Jesus, Jesus, like, do you believe? I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief, right? I can have both things true. And I just kept thinking as a pastor, Jesus doesn't need me to defend him. Either he's real and he'll show up for the person that is begging to have an encounter or he's not. And I just don't think he needs my help trying to control whether or not somebody has a, has a doubt. It's okay. It's okay. I think he's real. I haven't had an experience with a resurrected person of Jesus Christ. So I don't feel like whether or not I gatekeep somebody's thought processes or doubts is going to help that person or help Jesus in any way. Also, we have a story, I mean, very much from the Hebrew scriptures at the beginning, wrestling with God, bargaining with God, doubting God, telling God, no, I don't like that, is part of the right. story from the beginning. Or and that's when, a silly plan, God, you really don't understand what's going on Right, here. all of yeah. this, right? Whether it's Abraham or Moses or, or Gideon. Peter. I mean, <laughs> Peter, right? All yeah. of these things. Thomas, right? Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's okay to say, I don't, I don't know. And, um, and God might be bigger than my knowing. God is bigger than my knowing. And I also believe that when we don't do that, we get very close into idolatry. 
And we start Mm -hmm. to worship the God of our own understanding or knowledge rather than the God that might exist well outside of our image that we've created of God, right? I think it was Augustine who said, um, if it is God you think you know, then it is not God you know. Some sort of paraphrase around that, right? Um, It is not God that you're talking about. I just think that the mystery and, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church um, does, and the Orthodox Church in general does such a better job of embracing mystery. and, and even earlier followers of Jesus that we're just not going to know, even the, the Psalms, right? God, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, this is okay. Uh, in fact, it's not just okay. It's highly encouraged. And I think when we admit our struggles in all of that, so for every pastor in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's worried about this gatekeeping, if you don't, if you think of an intimate relationship you have in your life and you're holding back in that relationship, doubts and fears or insecurities or curiosities or wonders, then there's so much of of you that that person can't know, right? Mm. Um, And that you don't allow to be known. But if your community can hold the space, say, Jesus has got you. He doesn't need my defending. He doesn't need your defending. Jesus exists whether you believe in him or not. Um, What would you like to discuss, wrestle, know about? Then as we share what is already true inside of us and believing in an all-knowing God, we know that God already knows those things even though we haven't vocalized them, um, then we become more known, right? And I think I think it was in something you were sharing in one of your podcasts that the Shema, the hearing, is one of the very first ways in which the people of Israel, it is the way the people of Israel first come to know God. They don't see him. We, have, we saw no form on Mount Sinai, right? We heard. And I think when we talk about um, relationship with God or relationship with anybody. This is a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's the hearing and the talking and the listening and all of that. Mother Teresa one time was asked, like, when you pray, what does um, God say to you? And she said, nothing. He just listens. And she's like, well, what do you say to God? He said, nothing. I just listen, right? There's <laughs> just like this holy listening space um, that is so deeply important because the eyes can deceive us. Um, but the hearing and the listening is also relationship, right? If I say, Oh, I, I saw this person and I saw this royal person or a president or whatever. And I walked through the hall and they saw me and I saw them. You're like, well, that's cool. You got to see that president and they got to see you. But that's mm-hmm. not a relationship. The relationship happens when you start to talk. And then you're like, but we had a conversation and I shared these things. I would just say this type of relationship that we believe in with, with a God who takes on human flesh and comes and dwells amongst us to talk, to share, to cry, to listen to love, um, don't strip yourself away from that kind of intimacy with with Christ by hiding who you are and what your doubts are. Well, Danielle Parrish, thank you so much for your wisdom about the church. <laughs> thank you. Well, it's a it's a it's um not from me, right? <laughs> it comes from above, but but I, I'm deeply grateful for a community that holds that space and wrestles with one another and um and continues to choose Jesus as, and the way of Jesus in the way. That's our that's the reason why Spark exists, um, to live the way, to inspire people to live the way of Jesus. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 